0: As we pick things up here today in, in verse 12, Paul's picking up his thought from verse four where he kind of took a little bit of a, uh, a, a break away what he was talking about there in verse four. Remember, Paul's been defending himself to the critics and that had crept in the church who were trying to discredit Paul, trying to Say he wasn't really a true apostle. This guy's kind of been letting us down. He's not showing up when he said he would to to visit us. He's a guy that he can't trust. And so Paul's been having to kind of deal with some of these things. Now we know, as he's been clarifying in the church, that his coming to them was not because he changed his mind or because he was untrustworthy. It's because he was wanting to uh, spare them coming and having to bring kind of a strong word of correction to them. He wanted to send a letter and just hope that they would receive it, ponder it, and allow the spirit to begin to work in their heart. And so he didn't come to them as, as he felt led by the Lord now to hold off. So he says in verse 12, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. So here's a little map here. Paul, remember, was down in Ephesus. And after his initial time in Corinth, Paul had made a painful visit to Corinth. It was one way to deal with various issues and bring church discipline there. He then returned to Ephesus and wrote a third letter, which is now lost. After being forced out of Ephesus because of that riot, that broke out because of Paul's preaching. And remember the silversmiths feeling like, oh, this guy's gonna run us out of business from our idol making and idol selling. So they kind of forced Paul out. So Paul leaves Ephesus bound for Macedonia, which is across the Aegean Sea there. But as he does, he makes his way up north and he goes to Troas where he hoped to meet up with Titus. Titus was the guy that delivered that third letter that's now been lost, that letter to the church of Corinth that was a, a painful one, it was a, it was a strong letter. And Paul's agonizing over how the church received it. And he's hoping to meet up with Titus there and, and, and begin to hear, hopefully, good news that the church received it. And they're like, Paul, we agree with you. Man, we gotta deal with these things. Now, here's one thing I love about Paul. He's forced out of Ephesus, because he preached the gospel and a mob was ready to take his life. But what does he do next? He just goes to a new place and begins to preach the gospel. Furthermore, when it came to Troas to do what? To preach Christ's gospel, it says in verse 12. That's what Paul went and did. He's like, okay, he doesn't look to question his calling. Am I really doing the right thing because my life keeps getting put in jeopardy by doing this. Maybe I should look at an alternate career here. He's not looking at going, maybe I just need to tone it down. Maybe just let things, you know, rest a little bit. He's not trying to adjust things to keep the peace. He just keeps doing what he's called to do. That was Paul's heart and mission, was to make Christ known, to preach the gospel. Listen, you're always in the will of God when you go forth with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and share that with others. You never have to question, is this the right thing to do? Sure, there are times you need to be tactful, and as the word says, we need to be Wise as serpents and harmless as does. But as you move forward in these things, you can be assured that you're stepping out in the Lord's will. Now notice, as Paul goes, it says God does what? He opens a door. Not a little door, not like Paul was looking to just get in the city, didn't have a key. No, it's like an open opportunity to share the gospel. We don't know exactly what that was or what that looked like. But Paul was excited that God was beginning to move and provide opportunity to share the gospel. As far as we know, there was no clear direct calling or revelation for Paul to go to Troas. This came about because Paul was being pushed out of Ephesus. So what does he do? He just gets going and seeing what other adventures God has for him. Listen, my friends, this is the exciting walk of faith. Paul doesn't get stalled or stopped in ministry, he goes, well, things are obviously not working here. Maybe we'll go and see what else God has for us. He doesn't wait, he doesn't pray, Lord, where should I go? He just gets moving. That's the walk of faith. See, we don't have to have everything figured out in front of us before we step out. In fact, if we're trusting in our plans or relying on our own resources, then that is not a, a real genuine step of faith. We're putting faith in what we've put before us. But I love to see how in the Bible, there's, there's many people that we've seen begin to just move out at just a word from God without knowing exactly where they were to go. Abraham was called to just get up from the place that he was in with his family. And doesn't exactly know, go to a land that I'll show you. Abraham doesn't really know where to go. He just gets moving. He just begins to step out in faith. And it's in that step of faith and beginning to move that God begins to reveal the next pieces. It's often been said that God can't steer a parked car. I mean, nobody can for that matter, but God, so oftentimes we're just out of fear of making a mistake. We just stay idle. We just park ourselves until we have it all figured out. But God says, begin to move. Begin to step out and see what I might do. Ecclesiastes 11 speaks about this action of faith. And in those first four verses of Ecclesiastes 11, there's a common phrase you'll see, it says this, you do not know, you do not know. So my wife says to me oftentimes too, but but it's, (laughs) she says it's biblical. (laughs) But you see, in Ecclesiastes 11, this walk of faith is the Lord revealing, you don't always know what I'm gonna do, how I'm gonna provide what I'm up to. So just begin to step out in faith and in action and see how that might get rewarded, see what God might do. We may not always see the reward, but you're guaranteed to miss the reward if you don't step out, if you're too afraid of trying. Don't be afraid of failure, be more afraid of not trying. See, Paul moves on from faith now, from Ephesus, not knowing what lays ahead, and the Lord provides this open door of opportunity to continue to minister and preach the gospel. Now, as we continue on there, even though God opens this door of ministry in Troas, Paul's heart was agonizing for the church in Corinth. He's longing to hear, first of all, from Titus, but more so from the church at Corinth to see how they receive this. He's just longing to hear good news and a good report. And so as Paul was hoping to find Titus in Troas, Titus doesn't come, and so Paul moves on to Macedonia. Now, what's interesting is that Paul kind of keeps us in suspense as to what really happened. He explains that he moved on to Macedonia, but we don't really know if he found Titus there. He moves away from this narrative only to pick it up again in 2 Corinthians 7 Verse five to six, from 2 Corinthians two, all the way to chapter seven, Paul leaves us kind of in suspense as to this journey. What happens? Did you meet Titus in Macedonia? Did, did you get a good, what, what happened? We don't catch that until 2 Corinthians seven, verse five, that says, for indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side, outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Okay, now we hear and know that Titus did meet up with Paul and gave him a great encouraging report. But it seems that as Paul thought about his experience here and the arrival of Titus, he stopped short of sharing it out of joy for all that was happening and all that was coming out of that meeting with Titus. And now for the next number of chapters until he resumes this narrative in seven chapter 7 verse 5, Paul breaks into this praise of the privilege now of his position in Christ and the richness of this ministry that we get to embark on by faith in preaching the gospel and being ambassadors of Christ. Paul for the next number of chapters is going to deal with that and talk about that. Now we read in verse 14 as he begins to just well up with excitement before telling us about his encounter with Titus, he just goes, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Now when when Paul begins to reflect on the faithfulness of God and all that God was at work doing, he just can't stop himself from just praising God. He has seen that he's been sustained in the ministry, that God's provided, that God's been with him. God's been good. God is worthy of all praise. And Paul just stops to just sing out, now thanks be to God. See, Paul can overlook the criticisms and the questions from his critics and the false apostles that were camped out in the church in Corinth. He can just kind of, you know, put those all aside when he just begins to remember who he is and what he has in Christ and who Christ is for him. And at this point, we begin to look at this interesting scene now that was a familiar one to many in this time and particularly in this area because Paul compares the ministry and the preaching of the gospel to a Roman triumph. Now, the highest honor that would be given a Roman general was this triumph, this kind of victorious uh, parade that would come into their town. And in order to have this kind of uh, you know, celebration, certain conditions and criteria had to be met. First of all, the particular general had to lead the charge on the battlefield. He had to be present and kind of the leader of this campaign that was taking place in overtaking another area and army. There must be 5,000 enemies defeated in that campaign and the campaign must be completed with the area being completely overtaken and victorious troops returning home. If those conditions were met, then that town would begin to have that Roman triumph celebrating this conquering defeat and victory from this Roman general. Now William Barclay says, very interesting, um, about this Roman triumph, let me read this to you here. William Barclay says this, in a triumph, the procession of the victorious general marched through the streets of Rome to the capital in the following order. First came the state officials and the Senate, then came the trumpeters, behind them came those carrying the spoils taken from the conquered land. For instance, when Titus conquered Jerusalem, the seven branched candlestick, the golden table of the showbread, um, and the golden la- trumpets were carried through the streets of Rome. Then came pictures of the conquered land and models of conquered citadels and ships, followed by the white bull for the sacrifice which would be made. Walking behind all these were the captive princes, leaders, and generals in chains, who were shortly to be flung into prison and in all probability almost immediately to be executed. Then came the officers who attended the magistrates, the lictors, bearing their rods, followed by the musicians with their lyres. Then the priests swinging their censers with a sweet smelling incense burning in them. After that came the general himself. He stood in a chariot drawn by four horses. He was dressed in a purple tunic embroidered with golden palm leaves and over it, a purple toga marked out with golden stars. In his hand, he held an ivory scepter topped with the Roman eagle and over his head, a slave held the crown of Jupiter. After him rode his family and finally came the army wearing all their decorations and shouting low triumph, their cry of triumph as the procession moved through the streets, all decorated and garlanded, surrounded by the cheering crowds, it made a tremendous day, which might happen only once in a lifetime. So very interesting scenario and picture that Paul draws as an analogy of our lives in Christ. Why Paul draws from this imagery is to show how Christ is like our our great general, who has secured the victory for us. He came to foreign soil and he defeated the work of the enemy. He died on a cross and he rose again to bring life and forgiveness of sin to all those who put their trust in him. Just like a general who had to have 5,000 of enemies defeated, we read in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, however, many of those who heard the word believed and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Oh, we know that there's many more that have been secured victory in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus saves lives. We were all enemies of God through Jesus, but through Jesus, we've been saved and we've been reconciled into a right standing with God to where we can now walk in victory, victory over sin, victory over death, to where we can experience this great triumph of Jesus Christ, to where we've been forgiven, and been given life in and through him. We've been captivated not by a sword, but captives of his love and grace and forgiveness. And now notice this here. We read that he always leads us in triumph in Christ. He always leads us in triumph in Christ. We're gonna kind of circle a couple things here because I want you to take note here of this, that's not gonna work here, all right. Well, maybe not, we'll skip that. But you can see here, he always leads us in triumph in Christ. First of all, understand that this is not a occasional kind of thing. This is not something that were to be just once in a while going, oh, boy, yesterday was a real defeat, but today was great. No, he always leads us in victory because that's been secured in Christ. We don't fight for victory. We fight from a position of victory. It's already secured to us and it's been secured in Christ. It's not relying on you. He always leads us in triumph in Christ. This isn't something, I'll try this pen here. This isn't something, oh, look at that. Look at that, in in triumph, In Christ, that's what I wanted to circle right there. In Christ, so this isn't something that's been relying on you to secure this, that you just gotta get your act together, it's found in Christ. And we're simply following along in what he secured for us. And we stand in that position of victory, we don't try to attain victory, it's already in Christ. And we fight, we wage warfare from that position of victory. And, notice this, this victory comes as we simply surrender ourselves to the Lord and live and abide in Christ, because these lives are meant to be lived for Him and for His glory. Lay down in surrender to Him as our conquering victor. But notice this here now, and as we surrender to Him, He diffuses the fragrance. Diffuses the fragrance, we're gonna see this a lot here. Fragrance, we're gonna see aroma here, aroma there. We're gonna be getting a lot of scents here today. He diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge. I don't know about you, but I I kinda like, you know, these oil diffusers. They're kind of a big thing, right? Anybody have an oil diffuser in their home? Essential oils, you pour in, yeah. Okay, all right. Just not not as many as I was hoping for, that's all right. Now I feel a little bit weird, but it's kind of been a bit of a popular trend. But listen, when you have a house of teenagers, you know, or you live out in the country, it can be quite a necessary thing. Suddenly the stench that may have been filling your home gets kind of overtaken by a much more pleasant and life giving aroma, you see. You know, there's a stench that is tied to this world. This world and the things of it are passing away. That means there's decay. And with decay, there's never a pleasant aroma, is there? This is where we as believers step in. We get to be a difference maker to a world that has lost hope, a world that is looking for answers. We get to be that aroma of life as we reflect Jesus and we live a life full of hope and triumph as we follow Jesus. It's interesting, I, I bought myself, when I was in Egypt many years ago, I bought myself this little diffuser, and I bought some oil there from Egypt, It's big, and you put that in the top, and I meant to bring it today, I forgot it, just a little thing, but you put that oil in the top and you put a little candle in the bottom, and you light that candle and it just heats it up. And what happens when it heats up that oil, it just begins to spread it around, it, it just begins to, to, to just go all around all the more. I think about our lives, how often the Lord sometimes allows us to go through the fire, a, a trying fire. But it's not meant just to try us, it's also meant to purify us, but it then causes this fragrance to be emitted even more all to the glory of Jesus. And again, our lives exist for the glory of God. You think about that church of Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, verse eight to 11. Smyrna got its name from the word myrrh, and myrrh was a burial spice, and it was a resin which let off a beautiful fragrance only when it was crushed. And you think about what Paul says about our trials, thalipsis, what is it, a pressing, right? Pressing, sometimes the Lord allows us to go through the fire or time of pressing, but it's so that, that fragrance of Christ, the fragrance of his knowledge, it says, can be seen and known, in every place. It says in verse 15, for we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life and who is sufficient for these things. Here's the reality, we're going to be a fragrance but are we the fragrance of Christ? Bible says here that we're to be the fragrance of Christ. We're to be making a difference. We're to be reflecting Jesus. Are we pointing people to Jesus by how we live? Are people just able to hang out with us and go, man, there's something different here. Let's hope it's not because you haven't taken a shower or taken care of personal hygiene. Let's hope it's because you're going, man, there's something obviously different about you that adds. We're, we're called to be salt and light, but we're also called to be a sweet fragrance of Christ. We add flavor. We reveal light in the midst of darkness, but we're to be adding an aroma that's life-giving. Listen, we don't switch our... Uh, our aroma based on who we're hanging out with, we're to be the fragrance of Christ to everybody. Now, here's the thing. We can't control how people are gonna respond to our scent. When it comes to how we live for Christ, some are going to find our fragrance to be, as it says here, an aroma of life. I'm gonna clear this up here. We can be the aroma of life, okay, right there or you can be what? The aroma of death. You're gonna be, to some, an aroma of life, and to some you're gonna be an aroma of death. Just as in that Roman triumph, as the priests had their censers of incense and they were wafting along, when that victory parade came through town, there would be people that would begin to smell that in the air and they would be reminded right away, ah, we've got the victory but there were captives being brought along. And when that began to waft into the nose, they were reminded this is a scent that's leading to death. We're the captives here and we're gonna be brought to our death. How does that work in our lives? Well, some are gonna take a whiff of you and be disturbed. Why? Because your life being lived for Jesus is gonna convict them they're gonna be confronted with their sin and the reality of their separation from God. And if they don't wanna repent, you're gonna be like the aroma of death to those who are perishing. And you don't even have to try sometimes. Sometimes people are just surround you to where you're just full of joy in Jesus and they're just going, why are you like that? Why are you so happy in the midst of all this craziness going on in the world, all this uncertainty? People are living without hope, and they're wondering why you can be filled with such hope and joy. And you don't have to do a lot or say much, just being around you. People are reminded what they're lacking and missing. And to them, it's a reminder that they don't have a hope of life. To them, you're the aroma of death that's leading to death if they're not willing to repent. But to those who are, are searching or are those who are in Christ, your life becomes a lifeline. It's an aroma of life to them. People begin to be encouraged and strengthened. and they begin to see the victory that we enjoy in Christ. You know what it's like when you are maybe in your workplace or in your school and you meet another Christian? Your son is like, oh! I remember when we started the church and I was working at JustCan, an electrical wholesale distributor. And I was working in there and I'm surrounded by a bunch of you know, secular people, but there were various electricians that would come in and, and one electrician, we just got to talking and we just knew. There's, You're a Christian, aren't you? Yeah, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, yeah. And every time it came in, man, we just got together and we just shared and encouraged one another and it was just that lifeline there. It was that aroma of life that just strengthened and encouraged each other. It's interesting that the the church is called the body of Christ. There's to be a lot of body odor here, good old fashioned BO (laughs) happening (laughs) among us, my friends. How do we do that? How do we do that? Spend time with Jesus because you oftentimes smell like what you've been around, right? Whether it be hanging out at a campfire or at the dump (laughs) or you're hanging out with somebody that doesn't know their limits on their perfume that they're to put on. You begin to pick that scent up. Who you hang out with, you're gonna begin to smell like. May we be the fragrance of Christ and pass that on to others too. Paul says, and who is sufficient for these things? It's certainly not found in us. And Paul's gonna clarify this a little bit more in chapter three, verse five, when he says, our sufficiency, he says, is not of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Who is sufficient for these things? It's not in us. That's why we need to be filled with the Spirit, my friends. That's the real essential oil that we need. Having the Holy Spirit filling and overflowing in us, empowering us to live this life for Christ, in Christ, and and to be that fragrance of Christ. Now, though Paul will say that his sufficiency is not of himself, he in this last verse we look at also distinguishes himself from those that were coming into the church as false apostles looking to tear Paul and, and discredit his ministry. He says, we're not sufficient in ourselves. No doubt about it, but we're standing out from these other ones because we're not about ourselves. We're about glorifying God, unlike these guys, which he says in verse 17, we are not as so many pointing to these false apostles in the church. We're not... As so many peddling the word of God, but as a sincerity and as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Paul uses a term for peddling that's linked to that idea of being a huckster, a guy that was a swindler. There were people that came in and they were only seeking to profit themselves. They weren't seeking to share the good news to build up other people. They certainly weren't being a, a, a sweet fragrance of Christ, they were just in it for themselves, being hucksters, looking to profit themselves. Paul says that he and the true apostles are rather acting in sincerity, knowing that they've been captivated by Christ, and they're following in his procession, in his triumph, in his victory, and seeking to live their lives in a way that reveals who Christ is and his faithfulness in our lives Paul says we're speaking in a way knowing that God is is seeing all we speak in the sight of God and in Christ Paul knew that everything he did was going to be brought into the light of Jesus Christ one day and held accountable and that should bring fear for every single one of us to know that we're going to stand and give an account of God one day not for salvation that's secured in Christ but according to our works and what we've done for him Paul says, we've done all in the sight of God. We've got nothing to hide. We don't have selfish motives. These hucksters could have hidden their motives, but it's not hidden before God. Our motives in our heart are never hidden before God. We're gonna stand before him one day. And Paul says, I'm confident in that because he's following Christ here in great triumph in him and for him. And I pray that we will follow suit and that we'll continue to be that fragrance of Christ in a world that is filled with such decay and stench, that will be an aroma of life. Let's pray that people continue now to see that and they themselves desire to have that aroma of life rather than it being an aroma of death. Think about what kind of fragrance you're passing on. Well, listen, let's. We are out of time, let's stand together. I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna do something different today. We're gonna sing the doxology. Hope many of you know that, okay? Lord, we thank you for this word and reminder that our lives are to be making a difference. Thank you, God, that it's not from us or about us. It's about us just being with you and allowing that fragrance of Christ to flow out of us and to make a difference. We know that some are gonna be bothered by it, but we pray for their salvation. We pray that people in our families, people in our workplaces, would not be upset over this joy, this fragrance of Christ we have, but that, Lord, it would cause them to see their need for you and it would become an aroma of life to them, leading to life in you. So lead us, in great triumph in you, Christ. We thank you for all you've done, Jesus. Amen.